Christ the King Sudden Valley, we are an authentic Christian community, reaching out to people in love, acceptance, and forgiveness, so they may experience the joy of salvation and a purposeful life of discipleship. We encourage you to join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. We meet at the barns located in Gate 2. Find us on Facebook at CTK Sudden Valley or go to ctk.church. Now, let's join Pastor Jason Manning. My son, who's 14, is, is uh, in that avenue now, like we talked about with the God's Girls Bucks, of earning money, wanting to earn money in his life. And it made me think about uh, back when I was a kid. And my first source of income was the Edmonds Enterprise paper route. And I had a few paper routes um, and uh, I was reminded of those days as Colby now is trying to enter into different avenues in, uh, in um, creativity on how to make some money. Uh, but I remember how the paper route worked is I would, we would, late on Tuesday night, we would uh, rubber band or fold up all the papers. There was like 180, I think, of the houses that we went to. And then uh, we would then on Wednesday, right after school, we would deliver the Edmonds Enterprise uh, to the, the houses that were down in our neighborhood. Uh, my brother Matt and I, who my brother was 18 months younger than me, much like my first two kids are 18 months apart, but I remember we would do this together and we would roll in my mom's Chevy Astro van with the slider door open and we would jump out as it was still moving in a run still and throw the papers mainly on the front porch most of the time, some would end up on a roof, some would end up in a bush, but uh, nonetheless, we would try our best to have them land on the front porch of the houses. And I remember specifically 21826 96, 95th Avenue West in Edmonds. This was a house that was offset off the road. It was uh, sunk down, so the driveway kind of sloped down into it, and uh, it was kind of an overgrown front yard. And if we threw that paper from the street, it was really hard to angle it in into the, into the front porch. And so we would have to get close up, as close as we could to the house to kind of flip the paper onto the front porch. And I remember that this was the house that actually pushed the envelope of fear for me and my brother. I remember it almost like as if I, as the older brother, would egg my younger brother on Matt to get as close as he could before Godzilla Dog would come through the front door. Now, Godzilla Dog at that time was just a, a small little terrier, um, but this dog would come barreling through the front door at us as we got closer and closer to the house. And I remember one day as we were entering into the yard, step by step closer, I was egging Matt on to get closer and closer. And, uh, and sure enough, Godzilla Dog came through the front door and we turn around and we start running back to the car. This also, coincidentally enough, is the last time recorded that I was faster than my younger brother um, as I turned and ran towards the minivan. Uh, I jumped through as the dog leapt up and bit my brother on the fleshy part of his bottom, all right? And so, uh, and, and, and it, was, it was all a testament to that I was a step faster. Again, that was the last recorded time that I was ever faster than my brother. Um, but as, uh, as we jumped in the car, he got bit, my mom floored it, and it was like the getaway van as we 
left the scene of the, uh, of the attack. And that's at least how I remember it. Uh, my brother might remember it a little different. Maybe I was just egging him on from the car. I don't know. But uh, that moment for me, it's not that I have a fear of dogs, but I myself don't own a dog. We could put it that way. I don't own a dog. But in actuality, I'm the only one in my immediate family that doesn't own a dog. So my brother went on to own uh, his own dogs and my, my parents' own dogs and, and all this kind of stuff. But for me, I remember that incident whenever I think about, like when my kids say, we want to get a dog. And I'm like, oh, I remember that day. My brother was bit. He had to go get a tetanus shot and all that kind of stuff that went on. But for my brother, at least, he, uh, it, it, it had little to no impact on his decision to own dogs later in his life. He didn't develop a fear of dogs out of the bite. Maybe it was that he thought uh, that that bite wasn't too bad and that he'd go on to own dogs or that he was bitten and, uh, and, it, and it wasn't really a big deal at all, but it didn't impact his for, for, uh, future decisions. Um, it wasn't, and not like that Godzilla terrier, uh, if they go together, um, was a situation in itself that was a wild animal uh, out in the wilderness. I often love clicking on the videos of the bear in the wilderness that where like somebody stumbles on a bear or uh, there's a lot of videos right now of people re-entering Yellowstone and the bisons are now like, what are these humans here? And so I see a lot of those videos. Maybe because I click on one, I see a lot more. I don't know. I don't know how the internet works. But it wasn't that we, uh, we were faced with this wild animal uh, and, and the fear was relative. Uh, and so, but this morning, uh, I knew that when we had this series, when we started this series, I would choose a passage in the Bible at some point that addressed fear and it addressed a lot of other things. But more than that, it was probably one of the most obscure passages in the Bible that, uh, that I knew about and I knew that I wanted to at some point preach this message. Uh, it's a couple of verses nestled into the Old Testament of 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter. And, and it's a verse that uh, I'm unsure why there isn't Sunday school curriculum that is developed specifically around this verse. Um, but I know as a boy, man, if I would have read this verse as a kid, uh, I would have been all about reading my Bible. The story is about Benaiah. And Benaiah in, uh, in 2 Samuel in the 23rd chapter is a list of David's mighty men. And so Benaiah is one of David's mighty men. Uh, if you don't know who David is, David was as a young boy at 14 years old, he, was, uh, he, he got the uh, calling that he was going to be king. Uh, and at that time, Saul was king, and Saul was operating his kingdom in a way that was uh, not in line with what God desired. And so David was called to be king, and, uh, but he had to wait his turn, really. Uh, and so David, uh, if you don't know, David is also the, the David from the David and Goliath story, the Philistines. Um, but David at 14 was called to be king, and it wasn't until after he went through the whole David and Goliath situation uh, and, and, and took out Goliath that he really started to gain momentum uh, in, in, in who he was. 
And uh, people started following David at that time. And Benaiah was one of them. Benaiah was one of them that had broken away from the current kingdom and started following David and was part of David's mighty men. Uh, this list of mighty men in, in, in Samuel, as I read over it and I read over the different people in that list, uh, it's a list that really uh, David, that proves that David surrounded himself with um, people he elevated around him were people who uh, were based on a calling and a willingness and a devotion uh, to, a, a, to a very deep degree to following God and being a part of this kingdom that David was ushering in, uh, which definitely drew, uh, Beniah was the son of a priest, which drew him into the presence of David as well, uh, and, and David being king and following after God drew Beniah even into David's presence. And so let me read this story here. It's just two verses in 2 Samuel 23, verses 20 and 22. It says this, Beniah, son of Jehodiah, uh, a, a, a valiant fighter from uh, Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors, and he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He struck down a huge Egyptian, and although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. And so they're listing three mighty warriors at this time, and Benaiah was one of those. So Benaiah, we know from Scripture, would go on to even usher in Solomon's uh, kingship, which is David's son Solomon, when Solomon was going to take over. We know that from uh, Chronicles, or from Second and uh, First Kings chapter 1 and 2. Uh, and it was because of his dedication to God and to David that uh, Benaiah had that, that life of ushering in these, these kingdoms that were to come. And so now if we jump back into that story in 2 Samuel 23, I want you to listen again to it. Because we know that Benaiah and who he was in uh, that longevity of life of, uh, of helping to usher in David's kingdom as well as helping to usher in Solomon's kingdom... Uh, we know that off different times in, uh, in Benaiah's life, uh, he, everything that was there went against the odds. The odds were stacked up against Benaiah. It said he struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. And so it's kind of funny how the wording in this works. And, and I don't know, maybe I was just geeking out. But uh, Ariel is this idea of mightiest warriors. It's called Ariel is the word that's used there. But uh, Aria is a word that means lion-like. And so actually in our King James version of the Bible, it says that Benaiah struck down two lion-like men from Moab. And so uh, a lot of uh, scholars smarter than me wrestle with that idea uh, that these men were mighty, but they were also lion-like. They were fierce. And so I would say at most, uh, the odds of that fight are two to one. Uh, Benaiah taking on two Mighty lion-like men uh, in this moment that's recorded is a two-to-one odd that Benaiah would be able to succeed in that fight, uh, but yet he does. 
And then we look at the idea that uh, he, he takes on an Egyptian. And now, you know, we know David's story, the story of David and Goliath as he's a giant slayer. But we also know that Benaiah, because of what's recorded here, Benaiah was a giant slayer of his own. This uh, fight is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, and it, and it, and it, based on the cubits that were listed at that point, this man that Benaiah took on, this Egyptian, this Goliath in his own sake, was over seven feet tall. And uh, like it says in the scripture, Benaiah went at him with a club, and the uh, giant had a sphere of his own. And, uh, and Benaiah was able to snatch the sphere and fight the Egyptian with his own sphere. I don't know about you, but the odds of that fight, I don't know, I've, I've watched some UFC and MMA fights, boxing matches in my day. There's a reason why they keep weight classes together, because if you get Benaiah, however mighty he might have been, and a Goliath start, uh, stature person, like what's recorded in Second Chronicles and written here in Second Samuel, uh, over seven feet tall uh, with a sphere, I would say uh, Benaiah maybe had five to one, or five to one odds that he was going to win. He, he, he had less of a shot even in the two against one in this case. And then what the main focus of our, of our uh, attention is today is it also is recorded that uh, Benaiah went uh, and took on a lion on a snowy day. But not only uh, 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 just a lion in the wild, this lion had worked its way down into a pit and Benaiah went down into the pit on a snowy day and was able to kill the lion. Now, I don't know about you, but a lion... The odds of that are far greater of, of, uh, that the lion would take care of Benaiah than probably of any of the other situations before this, especially on a snowy day where the traction is rough and all that kind of stuff that weighs into it. I don't know what the odds would be, 50 to 1, that Benaiah would be able to take on this lion. But nonetheless, he does, and it's recorded that Benaiah took on the lion and killed him. And I, I, and I can't pretend to know why that that specifically is written in the Bible other than, uh, than, you know, the idea of us looking at it today and looking at some of the principles that maybe Benaiah, uh, Benaiah it displayed in this. And when I see these situations, what I know about Benaiah is that he did not avoid situations where the odds were against him. Right? He didn't focus in on what his shortcomings were or what kept him from being able to uh, do the things that he wanted to do. He didn't uh, go, on with, uh, go on as recorded in ranting or talking about things that were uh, of influence to him that kept him from uh, whatever it is that God or whatever situation that is in. He just took on the situations, even though the odds were against him, uh, and he, uh, he entered into those uh, situations. See, many times throughout Scripture, uh, this is recorded in this way around God's people. All throughout Scripture, uh, it is often recorded that God actually doesn't intervene until uh, the human odds are against them until the human odds are stacked up against whoever it is that, um, that, uh, that is in the situation. I think of Moses in the Red Sea. God could have um, delivered the people that Moses was leading instantly if he wanted to. 
But it, it isn't until their backs are against the, the Red Sea that God enters in and divides that. And same with the manna. They're wandering around. They need manna. And it isn't until they're reliant on God. I think of the story of the fishermen who spent the whole night out fishing. God at any point could have presented himself during that fishing trip and filled their nets. But he waited until the end of the day when the day was done and they hadn't been able to do it. And he displayed himself in those moments. I think of the girl who was basically left dead and Jesus shows up and breathes life into her body. I think of the thief on the cross. It took that moment for them, that that final moment for them to realize God's presence for them and to see the glory of God. God loves impossible odds. God loves impossible odds. See, uh, for us, uh, it's often, and I hear my kids and I myself do it, it's often that I have to listen in as a parent when I hear these words at my house. Do you think I can? Right? As a sibling talks to another, do you think I could do, do you think I could do this? Or the words maybe, how much will you pay me if I can do this, right? Those instances in that moment are things that they're about to do that are outside their realm of possibly what they should be doing or could do, right? The adult version maybe for this is hold my beer. I'm about to do something silly. No, um, but in this moment, we have the, uh, th- these impossible odds that are set up. And I think for us, it, there's an excitement in the idea of being able to do the impossible, right? And it makes sense that God works in this way because impossible odds make God's glory greater. It allows God's, it allows God's glory to shine brighter and further in the situation uh, than, than it would be if we were to able to operate and, and, and succeed on our own. Right? God's glory is on display in a magnificent way because of the odds are only unhuman in allowing God to work. But, and it's, and it's a big but, because what happens if we never put ourselves in those situations? What happens if we never put ourselves in the situation of the impossible? The situation where only God could do something. A couple things happen. One, God actually can kind of orchestrate that to happen, right? He can orchestrate for us to then get to the point where we're reliant on him. I think of uh, the instance of Gideon's army, right? Gideon has all these men that are lined up to fight, and, uh, and, and I think God knows that Gideon would probably take some of the credit, and the men would take some of the credit. So what does he do? He says to Gideon, hey, Lessen your army. Uh, everybody who's afraid can go. And a th- I think a third of the people or a fourth of the people leave at that moment. And you think, man, like that's a lot of the army that leaves. But then yet again, God sets up this situation where they go down to the water to drink and the certain men who drink in a certain way must then go. And he cuts it uh, down a third again. And then not only that, he tells Gideon that they're to fight the battle with trumpets and jars, right? I think of actually Jericho's, the walls of Jericho's a similar situation. They're going up against the most fortified city of the land and they, it gets destructed by trumpets 
and the walls fall, and it's only that God could take credit for these moments. I think that that's maybe why trumpet is the most popular band instrument in school band, I think, right? Because it's actually a very uh, useful weapon, uh, right? In scripture, a trumpet is like amazing, right? If you have a sword, you're good, but if you have a trumpet, whoo, you can get things done. Uh, no, but I think, and I, and I was even thinking about our situations that we're facing in our lives right now, what the church is facing in our lives right now. I don't think that it's God brought on COVID uh, or all that's going on in our lives, but here's what, I, what I'm pretty confident in, that God is allowing some of the things to happen around us some of the situations that we're facing around us as to get us to that point where we're really reliant on him. That we're no longer thinking of ourselves. We're no longer thinking of our own ability. We're no longer trusting in our own ability, but that we're actually to the point where we can only trust in him. So the second uh, is this idea of credit, that idea of where we could take some of this credit for the things that go on in our lives, the things that we accomplish in our lives. It's easy for us to take credit. And so I ask you the question, when's the last time that you gave God full credit for anything that happened in your life? Right? Not that, not that, uh, that we do that all the time, but I know for me at least, and maybe you're like me, oftentimes I struggle with this idea of, of taking some of the credit myself. Um, I think that uh, when we give God the credit, we are recognizing his glory and his ability to work. Um, and with God, it, with God in, in, in actuality, God is actually seeking credit. He's seeking credit for everything that goes on in our lives. He wants us to give him the glory, to give him the credit of everything that is going on in our lives. And I think for me, uh, and it's why I'm a list creator or I talk about the, all the things that I do is because I, I want to swallow up some of that credit for myself and be recognized for it. And that's a selfish thing. That's like me focused on self and what I want. God wants the credit too, but it's not a selfish credit that he desires. It's a kingdom credit. It's a furthering of his entire kingdom based on his, his plan and his people that he's created to give him the credit and all the glory so that more may see his glory and the way that he uh, is working. See, I still struggle with the idea of taking that credit myself for selfish reasons. Church, how many times have you given God partial credit? Where you've gone to him with some situation and, and, you've, and you've asked him to work and he's worked a little bit, but then after you've kind of got your feet back on the ground, you take off and run with it yourself. Or uh, think about it this way, because this is kind of a creative way that God gave me to think about it this week. And how often do we ask God to make it easier on us as opposed to asking, just asking him to increase. The prayer of God, will you work in this situation? Will you lessen the, the pain? Will you lessen the fear? Will you lessen what I've got going on in my life? 
But maybe the prayer could be, God, may you increase. May my focus be more on you during this time. May I be more centered on you and the way that you work in my life. It's a weird kind of way to think about it rather than just strictly thinking about God lessening something for your purpose. Because then oftentimes we say, okay, thanks, God, I got it from here, right? I can handle it now. Phew, man, things got pretty tough there for a little bit, but now I'm good, right? Now, this is weird, but stay with me for a second. Uh, what What if we all had the mindset of life is tough, I don't know about you, but I don't desire to speak those words, you know, to, to actually come to grips with, you know what, life is tough. Life is tough for us. The mindset of living a tough life, right? Life being tough, a tough life is more true, uh, in my experience at least, than not true, right? In all the things that we face, raising kids, working, uh, culture, uh, surviving, uh, making money and working, all those things, for me at least, all along the way, the constant in those things is, is life is tough. Like we've got to handle it. And I think, uh, what if we lived a life or lived in such a way that we understood that life was tough and we realized that, but man, God's glory through that toughness shines brighter than ever because of he, him filling in the gaps or filling in where we feel like uh, things are too tough. The toughness of life in God working is to be equally as present. Let me say that again. The toughness of life in God working is to be equally as present. As we understand how tough life is, and maybe you're sitting in a situation right now where life is tough, but the toughness of, 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 of different stages of life and what you've got going on is matched with the equality of God working. If we can live a life like that where we allow God to work in the tough situations, then his glory will shine brighter and brighter than ever. Think about this. Think about the relationship with uh, a, a child, a parent with a child, and having that child have a, having a quality understanding of what life is. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, uh, I've got two, I'm going to have two teenagers here in a couple weeks. And as those teenagers grow, I want them to develop a healthy understanding of what real life is. I can step in and, and, and shelter them and, and not expose them to certain things in life, um, for what I think is their good, but then they develop an unreal, uh, an unreal uh, view of what life really is. See, what happens in most cases is, is we are overprotecting of our child, and our child, uh, we allow them to not experience the maturity of what life really is at a level that is equal to where they're at in their life. Uh, this past year, we had the GIST Parenting Conference uh, here at the church, and we had, I think it was close to 100 people come through this. But there's this overarching theme and idea in this, in this GIST book that talks about the development of children, and that as kids are exposed to anything from drugs to what's called helicopter parenting or overprotective parents, their development in their life stops at that moment. And life goes on and they get older, but their development halts where they're currently at and where they were parented 
at. And I think for us, our relationship with God is that way at all. Where we stop and don't allow God to work in our lives, we don't learn of God's uh, equality, God's uh, power, God's glory in our lives because we've left him behind at a certain situation. See, if we live a life where we're not reliant on God, we produce a life that is not reliant on God. If we live a life where we are not reliant on God, we produce a life that is not reliant on God. Man, I think for me, that situation could produce a life that is both maybe by culture something, um, uh, some, somewhat of a successful life, but it also can present a life where uh, we struggle more than humanly we can handle in our lives, despite the inability to access that in which we have access to the author and the creator of all things and his glory and, and the way he works, that we step into and act out of our own human ability. And I tell you what, it's, it's a scary life to live reliant on God. It's a little bit, the little bit I've done has helped me uh, to understand that I, I actually desire and strive to do that more, but it's scary because I don't have control of it and I don't uh, get credit for it. Right? I wish that I'd be striving to do it more in my life, mainly because personally uh, I wrestle with this, this idea or this word of fear, being scared to relinquish control, being fearful of, to relinquish, relinquish control. See, what fear can produce in our lives if we live a life where we put God's glory uh, in the midst of all the things that we're facing is that it produces uh, courage in the idea of trusting God. See, fear for situations lessens usually uh, over the amount of times we're exposed, we expose ourselves uh, to that way of life. Right? It's when we push through the fears that we have growth, that we have further trust in who God is. I was uh, watching, uh, if you missed it, Micah had uh, appendectomy surgery this week, and so we got to watch a lot of movies, and he's watching Secret Life of Pets 2. And uh, in that movie is a very biblical part of that movie where uh, one sheep goes off, and, uh, and leaves the crowd, and, uh, and then they go after that one sheep. And I think of the leaving the 99 to go get the one. Um, uh, but Lucas in the story and Rooster leave the farm to go get this lost sheep. And in that, in that, in that uh, movie, there's this line. It says, the first step to not being afraid is acting like you aren't afraid. And I was like, oh, I was in the middle of writing my message. I was like, no, that is not true. The first step of not being afraid is not acting like you're not afraid. And I was like, and I had to like stop the movie and I'd be like, I've been reading about this, Micah, and I got to share with you. The first step of not being afraid is putting yourself in situations where you are afraid. It's not pretending that you're not afraid or, or uh, living a life where you're in denial of your fear but it's actually putting yourself in that situation. The first step to not being afraid is being in the position where you are afraid. 
I think of the, the situations like uh, money, right? Uh, to give or to live a life where we aren't relying on money, that we aren't fearful of not having enough, but that we trust in God for it. Or I think of the fear, a fear of heights. A way to get over the fear of heights is to put yourself in the position where you, uh, you meet that fear, or uh, fear of water, or you see, if, if we avoid this situation and never expose ourselves to it, now, sometimes we can outgrow them uh, or stumble past them, but chances are we're not going to make a change. Does that make sense, right? We want to put ourselves in those situations, and in a second here, I'll tell you why. But Psalm 139, 5 and 6 says this, look behind me and you are there, then up ahead and you are there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful. I can't take it all in. And this is God's presence in all of those situations. See, most of our problems, our fears, are not circumstantial, right? Most of our problems are uh, perceptual. Our biggest problems or fear, uh, fears or tough situations can be traced back to an inadequate understanding of who God is. Right? Our problems seem really big because our God seems really small. In fact, we reduce God to the size of our biggest fear, our biggest problem. Bat- um, uh, Mark Batterson in his book about this situation, A Lion in a Snowy Pit, says this, and this is good. Scaredy, scaredy cats are filled with fear because their God is so small. Lion chasers, like Benaiah, lion chasers know that their best thought about God on the best day falls infinitely shorter than how great God really is. So you know what the greatest tragedy, I think, tragedy in life is? And this is, this is my story. Why I do what I do is because I don't want people to mess, miss out on the presence of God but it's those of us that have allowed God to get smaller and smaller and smaller each passing day. That we've limited our God by living a life that limits his ability to be present in our life and to be seen. See, maybe it's, maybe it's time to stop um, creating God in your own image and let him create you in his image. Let his ability to create your life instead of your ability to limit him in, in your life. The more we grow, the bigger God should get in our day-to-day. And the bigger God gets, the smaller our fears, our lions will become. I don't want to scare you with this, church, but it might be part of God's plan to put you, metaphorically speaking, because... I don't think any of us here in Whatcom County or in, uh, in the U.S., maybe wherever you're tuning in, but uh, God's plan might be, part of his plan might be to put you in a pit on a snowy day with a lion. And then you can recall that verse that in Psalm 139, I don't know what I would do if I was in a pit with a lion, but I don't know that I would go to Psalm 139, but we would recognize that God was there in front of me. He was behind me. He was to my left and to my right, and he would, his presence would be felt, right? The cure for our fear of failure uh, is not success. It's actually coming face to face with our failure, Our position of failure or fear is actually God's position of victory in our life.
One of the greatest things that could happen for you is for your fear to become a reality and you would dis- discover that uh, it, your fear isn't the end of the world. Right? Your fear is worse than the actual thing that you're afraid of. And this comes to how we operate in our day-to-day and our ministry and our trust in God, not only in our silly fears of, and they're not silly, heights or water or whatever it may be, but in our real life, we will realize the things that we're scared to do for God, the fear that we have for that is far greater than the actual thing that it is that is scaring us. See, when we put ourselves into a situation uh, where we seem to be defenseless, where you seem to have uh, the, you don't seem to have the power or strength or understanding or ability or maybe a combination of all of those, that it is when uh, it is in those situations that we realize, and, and this is my baseball lingo here, that the table is set, the toast is in the toaster, that God is in scoring position in those areas of your life, that He will work. And he will develop and he will work you through that fear of what he's calling you to do in your life. Church, it is our fear, or put it this way, it is our desire to avoid failure, rejection, uncomfortableness, inability, falling short, messing up, missing the mark, pushing ourselves to the limit uh, so that God can begin. Because God begins where we end. Where we finally say, I don't have it. I don't have the ability. I don't have enough. That's where God steps in and increases his ability. I'm going to end with this. If we don't, as individuals and as a church, go to the areas where God works in our lives, the hard and difficult areas, the areas of our lives uh, and the lives around us where uh, there seems to be no way we would survive or be able to succeed or we would able, be able to do those things in our lives, those areas, if we don't go to those areas, I would question whether or not we are even carrying the gospel with us. Right, Christ calls us to like he did for each one of us. He calls us to die to ourselves so that he may live in us, through us, and to others. So if we don't enter those areas as a church, as an individual, as, as, as God's people, I would question whether or not we are really even taking the gospel with us. I'll invite the band to come up. Let's pray. We pray that God blesses you with this message. If you would like to contact us, please reach out to us on Facebook at CTK Sudden Valley or visit our website at www.ctk.church. You can also find other episodes of this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, may God bless your week.